Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a closer look at opioids in Minnesota's tribal communities. Avian flu again has the attention of local turkey growers, and DNR Commissioner Tom Landwehr addresses the growing need for fee changes and license cost increases. But first, the Minnesota House and Senate this week both passed a key component of Republicans' health insurance reform plan. It's called reinsurance, and MNN's Bill Werner is here to explain. Scott, reinsurance is when the state pays the costs of care for the most seriously ill Minnesotans so that they're not in the so-called risk pool that insurers cover. Backers say it will help hold down increases in everyone else's health insurance premiums. Governor Mark Dayton wants assurances from HMOs that it will actually happen. Are they going to stay in the market then as a result? Are they going to lower their rates and keep them where they are? You know, raise them for whatever percent, and if so, give us a ballpark. We need to know what we're getting for this uh, very significant commitment of public funds. Despite Republican lawmakers' statements, HMOs are making no guarantees about where health insurance premiums will end up if the state implements a reinsurance program. Jim Showalter, president of the Minnesota Council of Health Plans, does say. There's a commitment here from the insurers uh, to serve Minnesotans and that a strong reinsurance proposal is a critical step. I explore this issue further with Showalter. Let me quote a line from the letter uh, from the CEOs to the governor and legislative leaders. And I, I want to explore this a little bit further with you. Um, they say, quote, we want to put to rest any question that this is an insurer bailout. Public money for reinsurance, state and federal, will be used to pay medical bills for the care that people receive, which is what you alluded to. But this issue that they are saying that it's not an insurer bailout, I suspect that a lot of Minnesotans are going to look at it this way. They're going to say, okay, we're putting state tax dollars in to cover the cost for health insurance of the sickest Minnesotans who have the most expense. Therefore, um, these insurance uh, or these HMOs basically have those lost leaders out of the pool and therefore um, at, at our expense and therefore they can make more profit along with maybe reducing our uh, insurance premium slightly. Would you please respond to that? Sure. You know, a part of that concern and that fear is understandable. And I think all of us are really uh, scratching our heads and worried about what's going to happen next. That's part of the reason why the state has a regulatory system so that insurers' uh, rates are put into actuaries and, and officials at the state so they can see if they're reasonable, if they make sense, if their assumptions match what uh, they see happening. And that's why we have the, some of the, that expertise at the state. Um, you know, the, at the bottom line is there's this perception that this money goes to insurers up front or somehow it helps their bottom line. What it does is it pays for high medical bills. And rather than having to charge everyone else even higher premiums to pay those super high medical bills, the state and all of us will help shoulder some of that burden. No, I understand what you're saying. Uh, my, my question goes a little bit beyond that. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can you and your, your CEOs of, of these various HMOs, the top HMOs in the state, can, can they say to Minnesotans uh, that... Um, we're not going to be making any more profit, <laughs> you know, and I understand you're you're nonprofits, but, but but that you're not going to that you're not going to get more more revenue in as a result of this into your own particular coffers. 
Yeah, I think a really close look at what's been happening uh, for uh, the bottom lines of the insurers over the last several years would show that hundreds of millions of dollars of medical bills were paid above and beyond the premiums that were collected. That's Jim Showalter with the Minnesota Council of Health Plants. Scott, coupled with the debate that is ratcheting up in Washington, D.C., this could well become the most contentious issue on the Minnesota legislature's plate this year and maybe even for years to come. That's MNN's Bill Werner, and we'll hear from Bill again later in the show. Up next, the opioid epidemic in our tribal communities when Minnesota Matters returns. Sometimes, a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects, benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. A new state report sheds light on the growing impact of opioids on Minnesota's tribal communities. I recently spoke with Director of American Indian Health for the Minnesota Health Department, Jackie Dion, about the report and what can be done to better serve our communities devastated by addiction. Opioid deaths have increased in the state by 430 percent since 2000, which is something that we pay a lot of attention to or gets a lot of notice, but I'm, I'm wondering what kind of an impact uh, it's having on tribal communities and, and what sort of uh, light this report would shed on that. Yeah. So Minnesota ranks highest amongst all states in deaths due to drug poisoning among American Indians and Alaska Natives five times greater than the white Minnesota rate. So it's hitting us pretty bad. And uh, I'm assuming that the report sort of explains uh, possible reasons why this might be. Uh, if, if you could just detail for me a few of the significant reasons why uh, the number stands out so much here in Minnesota. Um. Probably there's a number of reasons. Um, There's not just one reason this is hitting us. Um, Addiction has been um, highest amongst American Indians for systemic years, hundreds of years. Um, And we at the health department talk quite a bit about it being um, linked into all the traumas that have been inflicted on the American Indian population and then uh, the root causes of the generational transfer of the traumas uh, across the board, and the, con- the current conditions of which uh, people live, work, play, and, and pray, housing, unemployment, transportation, um, underemployment, um, the, the chronic conditions of poverty 
that exist across the state. Um, and then, you know, there's some reason to believe that um, we're targeted by um, alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceutical companies in terms of, of uh, increasing the presence of those in the population. So it's hard to know exactly the one thing that's, that's a cause of this. It's a number of things. In terms of what the report recommends for uh, combating or trying to prevent some of these things, uh, one of the one of the aspects that I found interesting was the uh, law enforcement saying that there's maybe a, a lack of focus on uh, culture and values and uh, cultural specific treatment is something that was recommended. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. So we know that. Um Interventions or treatment or the, the, the mainstream type services um, are not working for our population. Um, if they were working, we'd see the same outcomes uh, in our population as we do in the non-Indian population, and we don't. Um, we have the highest um, rate of people that go through treatment more than one time, often two to three times, um, and then even after that, there's there's not uh, the high rate of success in staying sober. Um, the cultural practices, intuitively, we know work, and we see them work in community. Uh, kids that know their language, that practice their ceremonies, that are ingrained in culture, are um, kids that tend to graduate from high school, get gainfully employed, um, uh, raise families, and be able to provide for their, their basic needs. Kids that, that don't they struggle with graduating high school, they struggle with maintaining employment, and they often have uh, addictions um, in community. So we know they work. The challenge is, is that the number of people in the state of Minnesota is small. It's only about 64 to 100,000, depending on which census numbers you take. But it's about 64,000. And to do um, evidence-based research to show that they're proven to be effective is really challenging because the number is small. And to do research and have control groups and have the research be able to claim that it makes a difference is hard with such a small number, statistically small, but we can see it work in community. And law enforcement sees the same thing with kids that are embedded in culture and have strong family ties tend to do better. So bearing those numbers in mind, is, is it... Uh is it reasonable to think that uh, legislation or lawmakers might be able to do something or take steps towards helping yeah. prevent yep. this sort of situation? Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, the tribes with the resources they do have can invest in these efforts and um, and be able to, to address it. But they, for the most part, except for a few tribes, um, have still um, infrastructure they're trying to invest in within their communities, so like roads and and, and um, buildings and housing and and bricks and mortar kinds of things. There's very little left to invest in these cultural practices, even though they do. I think if the state were to put money forward and uh, complement their efforts, we could have more traction in these preventative activities that are part of the community, but but do not have the resources they need. You know, local um, municipalities have uh, property taxes that they can put in, 
and they have uh, uh, local aid grants that come from the state. So there's tax revenue that goes into municipalities to build community centers, to build parks, to build green space, to have these, these abilities. Tribes don't have that. Outside of their gaming revenue, they don't have those resources. And so when we partner, we can partner with the tribes in a way that builds these programs up to be more evident in community and to have more traction in community. These culturally-based programs are in pockets, and it's only because the tribe may or may not have resources to put into them across the state. Thank you once again to my guest, Jackie Dion. She's the Executive Director of American Indian Health for the Minnesota Health Department. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Technology moves at the speed of innovation, and today, that's lightning fast. So when you get your hands on the latest tech, don't forget to do the right thing with your old devices. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old tech device as easy as purchasing new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the responsible recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find lots of tips to simplify your recycling, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Television sets, video game consoles, smartphones, tablets, they're all recyclable. Don't let them clog up your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. You're sharp enough to get the latest tech tools into your home. Now be responsible enough to get your old devices to the recycler. That's greenergadgets.org. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Highly pathogenic avian influenza jumped back into the forefront for many Minnesota poultry producers recently with news earlier this month that an H7 strain of the virus had been detected in a commercial chicken breeder flock located in south-central Tennessee. Brownfield reporter Mark Dornkamp visited with Minnesota Turkey Growers Association Executive Director Steve Olson shortly after the avian flu discovery. And we'd rather not see it, and so it was it's discouraging to know that it's, it's out there, but we, on the other hand, we also expected. This is, uh, we've had very similar situations to what we had a couple of years ago, and like you said, this is, uh, it's actually broiler breeders, um, and so in this case, and so it's not your typical broiler flock that's that's raised for six, seven, eight weeks on a farm. These are, are breeder birds, and so these birds were 30 weeks old and 45 weeks old, and one of the things that we'd seen with the virus before was it, it tended to affect um, older birds, um, and so it didn't affect the, the real young ones. And again, 
from what the USDA, uh, the tests that they've already done with the sequencing and things, this is a different virus than what we saw in Minnesota and Iowa two years ago. This is a North American virus, and it's, it's an, one of the H7 strains. Steve, talk about the significance of the, the location of the virus, the fact that uh, in Tennessee this is part of the Mississippi Flyway, and as birds start to migrate back north, uh, what's the message to Minnesota poultry producers? Um, it's to be on high alert, and that you know that's something we were already planning. This is uh, you know we started uh, a few weeks ago with our our elevated uh, testing protocols, which means that we're testing more often, and we're also testing um, in the barns, especially in the case of turkeys, we're testing the the drinkers because uh, that's one thing that the University of Minnesota has done some research and and learned that we can pick up the virus before even clinical signs start to show up. So that's one of those protocols that we've implemented in in uh, in Minnesota. Yeah, maybe I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but uh, looking at some some commentary from the USDA, uh, I get the impression that they're pretty confident that this this was isolated, that they have it under control. Um, and again, it's hard to say uh, based on press releases and things like that. But uh, as far as how it's been handled at this point, uh, I guess the question I want to ask you is, what are the key unknowns right now? You mentioned this is an H7 strain. Uh, but but are, are there more details about the virus that, that we need to uncover yet? Uh, what are some of those questions that remain unanswered? Yeah, USDA held a call for industry and academia and, and other government state officials uh, earlier today. And yes, they were pretty forthcoming in, in what the situation was. There was a clinical science in the birds. So that's something that we'll continue to look for. Um, and, and basically they were saying the birds were, there were some respiratory um, issues as well as there was some uh, some distress with the birds, and so that's one of the, the signals that they. Uh, and then they also started to see higher mortalities, which is another indication that something's going on in that flock uh, that's consistent with high path even influenza. Those are the main things that I wanted to ask you about, and, and I, I realize there are a lot of unknowns at this point, and biosecurity continues to be emphasized. But any other aspects to this, Steve, that we definitely need to talk about? Not that come to mind, um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, what we experienced two years ago is helping us um, handle this situation. And one of the things that we learned is that we need to react quickly. And um, they certainly did in, in uh, both the companies involved as well as the, the state of Tennessee and USDA all reacted quickly with this. And so hopefully this is an isolated case, uh, but it does prove that what we learned two years ago um, is going to help us protect flock health going forward. That's Minnesota Turkey Growers Executive Director Steve Olson, who I spoke to March 6th, two days after High Path AI was discovered on the Tennessee farm. On March 8th, Low Path avian flu was discovered in a flock of 84,000 turkeys in Barron County, Wisconsin. The World Organization for Animal Health called it a less virulent H5N2 strain. The USDA says the flock was tested after showing signs of illness. Testing determined that turkeys in the flock were positive for the virus, which was also determined to be from wild birds. Testing also showed the virus is not related to highly pathogenic H5N2 strains that resulted in the loss of 50 million birds in 2015. Scott, back to you. Thank you, Mark. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Hey, it's Flint Lockwood here from Swallow Falls. My friends and I have just discovered these amazing living foodimals. But wait, we've also discovered a crisis that needs our help. According to my calculations, one in five kids in America struggles with hunger. That's almost 17 million kids. 
Our mission is to help solve hunger by teaming up with the Feeding America Network to get food to kids facing hunger in communities across the country. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks, helping connect children and families who face hunger to billions of pounds of food, reaching shelters, schools, and community centers in every county in America, including yours. Help Flint and the Feeding America Network of Food Banks get food to the people who need it in your community. Find your local Feeding America food bank at feedingamerica.org slash hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota DNR is asking lawmakers to approve proposed license and park fee increases this legislative session. MN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott, and here to explain the proposed increases is DNR Commissioner Tom Landwehr. Commissioner, I understand these increases were included in Governor Dayton's proposed budget. Why is getting this legislation passed so critical? Most people maybe don't know that you know the work that's done to uh, support fish and wildlife populations, the work that's done to you know manage our state parks and trails, the work that's done to uh, maintain our uh, 1,500 state public accesses. That's all paid for primarily by the users. So people who hunt and fish, you know, buy licenses. People who go to state parks buy a permit. People who uh, run a boat have a have a, a registration. Those fees are the primary source of money to maintain those uh, activities across the state. And so uh, as costs go up periodically, we have to increase the fees periodically as well. And I know it's been a while since we've um, increased these user fees. When was the last time that we raised majority of these fees? Well, there's a number of fees we're looking at. And, you know, the last time they were increased range from five years ago for the hunting and fishing licenses to, you know, 15 years ago for some of the uh, OHV, ATV, and boat uh, licenses. So it ranges depending on the particular uh, fund and program. And, and I should mention, too, that, you know, the, the dollars that are raised from any one of those activities is only used on the promotion of those activities. So, they, you know, we can have a positive balance in one fund and a negative balance in the other, and that doesn't help the, the, the fund that's got the negative balance because we can only use the, the dollars raised from that activity. And when we're talking about these user fees, um, we're, we're not, I mean, I don't want to say it's not a lot of money, but I don't think that folks are going to, I guess, see sticker shock, so to speak. Could you explain some of, some of the proposed increases? Sure. You know, and, and I think, um, you know, it, it started by saying, you know, we're really blessed in Minnesota by having this extraordinary uh, portfolio of opportunities. You know, we've got great uh, uh, habitats for fish and game. We've got great, uh, you know, water bodies, obviously, for boating. You know, we've got outstanding winter opportunities with snowmobiling. And, and so uh, we've got a great asset to start with. But the, uh, the and we want to keep the user fees as modest as possible because we don't want the price of those fees to be a barrier to anybody taking part. And so, uh, you know, for instance, the, uh, the fishing license right now is $22. And we're proposing to raise it to $25. So it's a $3 increase, you know, which, which is 15%. So when you put it on a percentage basis, it sounds like a lot. But when you think of what you get for $25, you know, we've got just a, dozens of game fish species you can go after, you know, from lake trout, Lake Superior to brook trout on the North Shore and Southeast to sturgeon up on the uh, Rainy River and walleyes all over the state, big crappies in northern and perch. So we've got great opportunities and we've got, you know, 1,500 state public accesses, but another 4,000 other public accesses. So we have great opportunities to get out and enjoy it as well. So 
a very good bargain. In case of the deer license, we're proposing to go from $30, which it is now, to $34. So again, about a 15% increase. Again, you've got in Minnesota, you know, a great opportunity to actually bag a deer. You know, 30 to 40 percent of our hunters will bag a deer this year, and access to millions of acres of public land, and you know, a season depending on how you want to hunt that can start as early as October and run into December. So, great opportunity, great op- likelihood of uh, success, and uh, great access. So, relatively modest fees. I mentioned that 15 percent number. Since we try to keep the fees down, you know, 15 percent is uh, increase that we look at as being sort of modest but acceptable. But when you figure that inflation is two to three percent a year, you know, fifteen percent increase is eaten up, you know, in five or six years. So we have to look at these fees pretty much on that rotation about every six, seven years to make sure that we can just maintain the level of uh, management that we've got out there. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. These user fees, this this increase, this isn't going to be for new services and new different things and, and upgrades, correct? This is going to go back into just solely maintaining what we have. Is that correct? In virtually every one of those categories, that's the case. You know, we do a lot annually just to increase efficiency. So we eliminate programs, we eliminate, you know, facilities in some cases to make uh, the operations more efficient. For the most part, we're looking at just retaining the structures we've got in place, the management we've got in place, and, and maintain those opportunities for Minnesotans we've got. You know, the twist to that is that, you know, population is increasing. We're seeing more people using the parks. We're seeing, you know, more people getting out on ATVs and so on. And so the demand is increasing, but we're really just trying to maintain the quality of experience that people have right now. For more information on the proposed fees, head to the DNR's website. Back to you, Scott. Thank you for that, Tasha. And switching gears here before we wind up the show, the debate between Republicans and Governor Dayton over Real ID has ground to a stalemate at the state capitol, and MN's Bill Werner is back to untangle the spin. I start getting confused when politicians start using certain words. Some say all words politicians use are confusing, but I can usually get through most of them until they start saying things like status quo. I first started abusing that word when I was on the debate team in high school back in the third quarter of the last century. The word was invented a short time before that, when Rome ruled the world and architecture, as was just renovated at the Minnesota State Capitol, was the original item. Status quo means the existing state or condition. My condition is confused. This time it started with the Real ID Bill, something lawmakers have to pass before the end of the year or many people won't be able to use their driver's licenses to board commercial flights, something they will probably remember the next time they are in the voting booth. Whenever there is a high-stakes bill on their plate, lawmakers tend to attach other items to it, sort of like a cup of coffee that you wanted black but some idiot poured creamer in. At that point, it is somewhat difficult to separate, and you pretty much have to take it as it is, or forego your morning constitutional. By the way, speaking of the Constitution, in the state of Minnesota, it requires a bill deal with only one subject to avoid these kind of shenanigans. Sometimes in the heat of battle, lawmakers conveniently forget this. Places to go, important people to meet, better not get up or you might lose. That might be a legislative seat. Republicans, darn them anyway, want to deal with another issue in this Real ID bill, and it is a thorny one, whether the state should issue driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants or, to be politically incorrect, to illegal aliens. 
Governor Mark Dayton probably wishes Republicans had not brought this up because although current state agency rules prohibit issuing driver's licenses to illegal immigrants, those rules can be changed without the legislature's approval, and that's what Dayton wants. He argues we'll be a safer state if we allow undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Many in law enforcement who share that view, if people have to pass the driver's uh, test, both the written and then the on-road, they're going to be better drivers and they're going to be safer drivers. Now, Republicans are no dummies and they know what the governor is thinking. So they want a state law prohibiting illegal aliens from getting Minnesota driver's licenses. This is where I start getting confused basically leaves the, the immigration or immigrant driver's license issue status quo. It leaves it for the legislature to deal with at a later time. Well, I guess that makes sense. Illegal immigrants currently can't get driver's licenses, and if Republicans' bill passes, they still won't be able to get driver's licenses. Status quo. But hold on a second. The existing state or condition, the status quo, is that the rules can be changed. But if the rules aren't changed, then the status quo is status quo. But if the status quo is changed then the rules can no longer be changed. I must be overthinking this. How about this? Maybe in an effort to fully inform their constituents about exactly what they're doing at the state capitol, lawmakers could, instead of using Latin, start speaking English instead. Nah, that wouldn't do it either. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.